If we don't remember, we forget. And the only way to remember is to share. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 96 of the Assyrian Podcast, featuring Dr. Ruth Kambar. It's Ninor Tahir, and I'm super excited to share this story with you all. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Kambar in Greenwich, Connecticut, which is about an hour away from New York City. Ruth grew up in Yonkers, New York with her family. Her grandfather, Nikolai Benjamin, would tell her stories of their family and share photos and heirlooms with her. As the eldest grandchild, Ruth inherited all of the family artifacts and was told to keep it well. Ruth has done more than just preserving the family heirloom. She has dedicated so much of her recent years to researching everything she can find about the people in these photos and the various videos she has come across. Her work in academia and her passion for family and narratives led her to write her dissertation titled A Family Archive, Construction of Identity in the Assyrian American Diaspora. She earned her doctorate degree from New York University in 2013. When I visited Ruth in her home, I really felt like a kid in a candy store because she had so many old pictures, copies of the Assyria Star magazine, meeting notes, and accounting ledgers from the Assyrian American Association of Yonkers from the 1950s. And the best part of this entire experience was when she showed me a video clip of the Assyrians from Yonkers, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Boston, and the video was from 1937. In this episode, you'll get to hear from Ruth telling us her family story and all of her work on these projects that she's working on and more. She's an investigator at heart, and she's determined to find out more about every person in the numerous photos she's come across. In 2017, Dr. Kambar collaborated with Assyrian artist Kathy Yako in curating photography and narrative for the art exhibit Assyrians in Yonkers at the Blue Door Gallery, in which soon afterwards she wrote the book Assyrians of Yonkers. We love hearing from you, and before we get to learn from Dr. Kambar, I'd like to remind you to subscribe to the Assyrian podcast, rate and review us wherever you're listening. Also, if you know someone that you think should be on the podcast, please reach out to us at assyrianpodcast.com. And for our listeners from the U.S., here's a quick word about the 2020 census. Every 10 years, the United States completes a census nationwide to essentially get a count of everyone who lives in the country. These counts are very important because they give the government a sense of the demographic makeup of the nation. All Assyrian organizations have unified in an effort to ensure an accurate count of all Assyrians in the 2020 census. Here's how you can make sure you're counted as an Assyrian. Under the race section, check mark other and write out Assyrian in the space provided. For more information regarding the 2020 census, please go to 2020census.gov. Lastly, the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that's been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakos. He has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or at 847-982-9516. And now, here's Dr. Ruth Kambar. Thank you so much for having us um, in your home and being part of the Assyrian podcast. 
Thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Can you start off by telling us who is Dr. Ruth Gamba? Well, Ruth Kambar is an English teacher from Yonkers. Basically, I knew I wanted to teach English since I was in second grade. I had a great teacher in second grade, and by fifth, I was reading all the books that I wanted on my own. And uh, sixth grade, I was manipulating curriculum to choose my own books and not do what other students were doing. So I was always really captured by the, captivated, I should say, by narrative. And um, growing up in Yonkers, uh, my dad sailed in the Merchant Marine when I was very young. My grandparents and my aunt were always around because we lived close to them. My grandfather came over every day. And he was the storyteller in our family, my mom's dad, Nick Benjamin, Nikolai. And he came over in 1914, would sit at the table and basically command an audience. (laughs) Everybody had to listen. No one dare disrespected him. Um, He would say the Lord's Prayer in Assyrian before we ate. And we just would listen to the same stories. And people would say, come on, Pop, we've heard that one already. And I used to get annoyed because I thought it was really important that he was telling these stories. And by the time he turned 90, he had fallen. And I got, he was fine, actually, after that. But I got nervous. And I started to realize that he was speaking fluent Assyrian. My Assyrian is not fluent. I understand much more than I would speak. And I was afraid of losing something. And just so coincidentally, I took a mini course in folklore. It was only a two-day course with a professor who had retired from Columbia. And it was an in-service course. It wasn't graduate credit. It was in the middle of my degree. I still didn't know what I was going to write my dissertation about. I was still taking courses. And um, I ended up meeting this professor who thought I had something to say. And in studying folklore, uh, she taught me about oral history. And she encouraged me to record my grandfather that weekend. And that's what started it. So I actually recorded the stories. She coded the first tape for me and said to me, you know, you're a gem. You don't know what you have here. This is really important. And so I knew that, but I still didn't think about it for dissertation. I continued coursework and knew I wanted to do something about narrative, but I really wasn't sure. And then I started writing. I started writing basically about the construction of identity. I thought at the time I was only going to write about how we create our own identities by the stories we tell and leave it at that. I wasn't even thinking Assyrian diaspora in any way. This professor, Judy Passamanic, because she liked me and what I had recorded, she actually was applying for an NEH grant for that following summer. It was 92 she awarded me a fellowship to study with her. So in the middle of my degree, I went to study with her. One of the weeks was on folklore and oral history. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I actually met famous oral historians, and I read oral histories and really got to understand them. And so that's where I got the idea of this construction of identity. But I also noticed in my grandfather's stories that 
there were patterns. He only repeated particular stories. There were other stories that I, he just didn't discuss. There was never any real discussion about my grandmother's flight from Iran. There was never talk about my um, dad's parents and their flight. And uh, there was no talk about lost relatives, but just what the situation had been. And he would talk about where he was from, what it looked like, uh, what life was like for them. Um, he was very, very proud of his father. He used to speak about all the work he did, including work at the British Museum, translating tablets, um, working for the American Bible Society, and um, doing translation work for them. And he also spoke about... Um, there was a problem with the missionaries. That's all I knew. So I knew he preached in Philadelphia, et cetera. And then I was po a church in Yonkers was pointed out to me. I did not realize until recently that it was not his own church, that he was like a guest minister there. So I never met my great grandfather, but I had all these stories. And my great grand, my, excuse me, my grandfather actually named places, described their home, described one story I can tell you um, in particular was when my great uncle and my great aunt went to the roof and they were playing. That's one version of the story. And she fell off. She was two years old. She actually perished. And my great uncle, who had been holding her, fell, broke his leg, etc. Um, I never heard that he was hurt from my grandfather. But years later, when I started recording for the sake of recording, um, his sister-in-law, who was married to that uncle, mm -hmm. said to me, you don't know how hurt he was or how much your great-grandmother blamed him for the death of her baby. Wow. And so I realized that she had another angle on these stories, so I started interviewing her. And that's what really, it really started to take off because she was naming places she was younger. My Aunt Lucy Benjamin, she was younger than my grandfather but had a feminist take on every story that he had told. She had a, a slightly different version. I was really thrilled to hear it. And, you know, she even told me she bought a store on South Broadway in Yonkers for $300, and it was a knitting store, and how the men made a bet, a $5 bet against her that she would fail. What, um, what year was this? Uh, I'm not 100%, I have to be honest. Um, but... She, she was extremely successful. So I had, she was really tough, you know? So I took that break from NYU and returned. And I, at that point, so many of my professors had retired that it was very difficult for me to get a committee together. One professor who was there, who became my chair, who remembered me, and he was a research professor in the English department, um, in English ed, actually, at Steinhardt School. And he, remembered my work from a course I had taken or my very preliminary work and he steered me mm -hmm. I worked with an oral historian I worked with a storyteller I worked with someone else who had done um, some uh, thesis work on family narrative but Italian families um, and I also worked with Jewish studies and religious studies I selected the man because his name was uh Let's see, Benjamin Jacob. And 
Benjamin Jacob because my whole family was either Jacobs or Benjamins or Jacob Benjamin, David Jacob Benjamin. I said, and I'm even quoting a very famous linguist, Benjamin. I said to him, I need you. I really need your help. I know you know the ancient Middle East. You know my history. And I need somebody with who's a Benjamin in some way or a Jacob. And so he agreed to do it. And he said he even got confused when he was reading my drafts because he started to feel like he was in it because it was one name or another. Um, and that's basically how I, I started. And so I ended up really studying the uh, pedagogy of these stories. What was their intent? And my grandfather always said to me, this is who we are and what we are. And he would give me things and say, keep it well, um, books. And he never told a story without trying to prove to me that it was true. Even the most bizarre stories, like my great uncle wrestled a bear. I didn't believe it. And then he'd pull out the newspaper clipping. Um, yeah. And he has a book about right over there. Um, one of the missionaries' daughters wrote it, uh, a Cochrane, Emma. And she mentions my great great grandfather in it and an attack on them in the house and how he protected them. Um, and my grandfather was so proud of that. And he's got it underlined in pencil. So that would come out. Uh, he had a sealing wax stamp of my great grandfather's that's written in Farsi, Assyrian, and Arabic. It says Dawood Benjamin. So I have all these things. And I, he's the one that gave me the photos. Also, his brother. Uh, Jacob Benjamin Artashir, he had, uh, Ed Deshai, he had changed his name. He couldn't get into Purdue as a Benjamin. And because, really? yes, they were keeping Jewish students out. And, uh, so he changed it to Artashir. And I guess they didn't question it because he ended up at Purdue, um, and ended up in Indiana. He settled in Indiana and in Gary. So he was part of that group of Assyrians. Wow. And um, he wrote a lot. And I started to realize when I really analyzed what I had that my grandfather probably took a lot from his older brother's narratives. And um, I learned that they had been in Hader Louis. They lived in Siri. But um, he also mentions that they went to Holland. So I had this photo. And I knew that's my great-grandfather and my great-aunts, two of them. And... Um, I was just always told this is Holland, 1912. I never got real background except that he was there with missionary friends. Mm -hmm. So years later, and I'll tell you that when we get to that part with the book, how I, what I discovered just kind of, uh, stunned me. Okay. All right. But, um, basically that's who I am. I can tell you, I wanted to read this to you. I found this okay. while I was studying folklore and oral history, and it's a poem. What could I hope to do with my reels upon reels of tape? Embalm your memories? Compose the mummy of your living breath? And if I cut and pasted the transcript and picked out the vital parts and got rid of the waste, and if I stitched all the well-formed pieces together and constructed a text, what then? What did I think I could do? Preserve the actual poetry, the living speech of person to person? Armed with a Panasonic, did I think... I could undo your death. And when I read that, it really resonated with me. Um, there's also a children's book of Native American tale. Grandfather, tell me the story of when I was born. You know, child, you know that story. No, grandfather, I want to hear it again. 
And he says, listen, because this may be the last time that you'll hear it. So it got to a point where no matter what I picked up for whatever purpose, it connected to these stories Mm -hmm. and the value of these stories. So I finished the dissertation. And while I was doing that work, I had met Dr. Sargon Donabed at Roger Williams. I actually called the club, the Assyrian club in Chicago, one February break, and was looking around to see if anyone had analyzed these narratives. I wanted to know if there was research out there that existed like this. Um, And I talked to a man at the club who recommended that I speak with Sargon. I called Sargon. Years later, I found out he's related to my cousins from Chicago (laughs) and had no idea at the time. And only, I mean, really years later found out. Um, And he helped me with my dissertation a lot. He guided me. He was the only Assyrian that touched the the dissertation. And uh, he recommended articles for me to read, etc. And he wanted to have Lexington Publishing publish it as a monograph. I had submitted it just as it was, and the um, editor came back and said, this sounds like a dissertation. Well, I thought that's what she wanted, so I was very pleased that she thought it sounded like a dissertation, and I was confused. And then I learned that she wanted it in a different form, minus the research. She really wanted the narratives, etc. And a lot of that, you know, there were only excerpts in the dissertation. So I, um, I needed a rest from that dissertation that work took me 10 years and I really needed a break. So two years later or so, um, Kathy Yako reaches out to me, Kathy Yako Skurov, and she lives in Yonkers. A colleague of mine who had retired is on a cooperative board at a gallery with her. And she, Kathy wanted to do an, a mini art exhibit on Assyrians in Yonkers. And she contacted me through my friend Sylvia, and um, we started talking, and I find out that she is the niece of the Gasha from the Assyrian Presbyterian Church in Yonkers, that I knew him, that I knew the family, that I had photos of him. And so she and I got together, and we created in 2017 a small gallery exhibit. What we initially envisioned did not come to fruition. We thought there would be a room for my family, a room for her family, and one for John Amir, who's a scholar. Um, He's a Clark University, now he's in his early 80s. He's about to retire. And John, you know, I grew up knowing, and his family. So um, what we ended up really doing, I talked to her about reaching out to Marmari. I said, you know, many of the people at Marmari really are still in Yonkers. This is the active community. So many of my relatives had left Yonkers. And so some of the people at Marmari were what my grandfather would refer to as newcomers. So they come, they came when the Shah was deposed. And so they came year, much later. So in the seventies and, you know, around, um, late seventies and we, my family had come starting in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I went to Marmari, they welcomed me and I asked people for photos for the exhibit. I provided the narrative and what photos I could, because I really had no artwork. Um, and that was where I, that was what I could contribute. And so I began gathering their photos and realized that, um, this was the opportune time to create one of these books. It was just the beginning. And I really did an outreach after that to get more photos to do the book. But in the meantime, 
I was invited to a flag raising in Yonkers. Every year they raise the flag for the Assyrian Club and the um, Assyrian American Association anniversary. And it was 100 years when I got involved. So it started in 1914. My great uncle, Dave Jacobs, bought that building where the Yonkers Club is. And he started, he was active in the beginnings of the Assyrian American Federation. And so I really wanted to go. So that's how I began connecting with everybody again, um, outside of all the connections I already had. Um, they were kind of two separate communities. The Assyrian Presbyterian Church had closed. It's actually being raised the day of my grandfather's funeral, which was just incredible, just driving by it. Uh, the funeral home was not even a block away. And seeing that there was a big crane in there, I couldn't believe it. Um, and so the, it's it's been resurrected as another church. Mm-hmm. But that was really that chapter closing. Um, that group of people had joined South Presbyterian Church. Um, anybody who still remained in Yonkers, some also went to St. John's Episcopalian Church, some were at St. Andrew's as well. And Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. And um, a few went to Marmori. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I remembered being in that church, being in the basement and the dinners and the people I, you know, my grandparents' friends, mm-hmm. essentially their generation of people. And um, so I began reaching out for the book. Um, I had hundreds and hundreds of photos in the house. People were incredibly generous. Um, and people were sending me photos through the internet, but I, they were taking photos of photos and I, I had to, I needed original scans. Um, so I started scanning photos for people and, um, borrowing things and going and meeting people, um, and putting it together little by little, but people would send me pictures saying, this is Nana, whomever. And well, what was her name and what's the occasion of the photo? Do you have a date? Um, where is it, you know, and, um, in doing that, it was so exciting because I was able to connect families that didn't realize one family was actually in Marmari and didn't know they were cousins. Wow. Part of the family ended up in Russia and they spell their names slightly different, you know, and, um, they both ended up in Yonkers and, through the pictures and realizing what they were seeing in the book once it was published. I'm like, oh my God, here's a reunion. Mm-hmm. Um, I also discovered cousins and I did a lot of work on ancestry.com uh, because I even looked up people's families to find arrival dates, maybe information that they didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm on ancestry all the time because of that. And people even reached out through cousins. I did not do the DNA. They did. So they made connections with me that way, and I got pictures and information. Yeah. Um, I tried to make the book longer, but there's a set format. So I know there will be a part two okay. um, coming, and uh, maybe in a couple of years. But to know that I brought people together, but also um, to record our history. You know, years before when I was doing my research, I went online, I looked up books on Assyrians, I bought the Assyrians of New Britain, I bought Sargon's book for Easter Mass, had no idea it was even Sargon who had done it. Years later, I noticed his name on it, um, and the Chicago book, uh, and thought there should be something for Yonkers, you know, that, again, it was the sense of loss and, and bringing us together and keeping it somehow. In doing all of that, 
people in my family started to show up with memorabilia. And my Aunt Shirley Benjamin gives me things all the time. And so I'm, I'm looking at this old-fashioned wall. I'm like, okay, thank you. It's a little change purse. I open it, and she, it's a little packet in here. I said, what is it? It's dirt from Iran. My grandmother, when she was in the running, the great running, on her way to Bakuba, grabbed some of the dirt wow. from Edrashai. She was Teka Edrashai. And wrapped it and kept it all these years. So, you know, there's a real sense of what was lost um, for our families. She lost her sister and a great aunt. Um, the sister was an infant. She never talked about it. And these stories only came to light because I was running photos by people. Who is this? Who is that? What's the background story? And that's how I got that information. Uh, it was not something that was talked about. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I knew she has another sister who ended up in Cuba. The ship was turned away. I know I have Cuban cousins. And even recently, someone's reached out to me um, because he's related to my Cuban cousins and he lives in New Britain. Wow. And he's sending me pictures of his great-grandmother. She actually could be a sister of my grandmother's. It's the resemblance is so eerie, and it's that side of the family. So you know, I know I'm aware of that. I'm also aware of other Assyrians that I know that came up in his DNA. So it's very, very interesting to follow all of this. With the book, I never expected it didn't just reach Assyrians. All right. Because I'm an English teacher, I work a lot with the Barnes & Noble up the street from my school. I do poetry open mics with my students. They wanted to do a book signing for me. The crowd that it drew shocked me. And they actually put a photo of my book cover. It was so much smaller than my name because they knew who their audience was. And I had former students come with families, with their own children, um, parents whose children no longer live in the area, because they needed books signed to their children. Um, Assyrians came, people from high school showed up to you know, support me. And beforehand, my, my colleagues threw me a party, um, a kickoff party for the book. It was pretty amazing. And you know, I took the book to Marmari. We bought copies, advanced copies for people who couldn't get them. I had people calling me saying they saw it in Costco, they saw it in Manhattan. Somebody got an email or a text from someone saying, Did you know this book exists? I know you're in a Syrian from Yonkers. I just saw this in Manhattan. And she's like, Yes, I know. My family's in it, you know. Um, and I tried to get as many people as possible. I think the people didn't understand what I was doing. Now, I know that next time I'll be able to bring in this book and other books and show them how we're actually making a historical record here. You know, the intertextuality. I also tried to include some photos of documents because I received all of those from my family too, pamphlets, etc. cetera. Um, even pages of books are in there. And, you know, because that intertextuality of this story, it's not just an oral narrative. It's not just some family photos. There's such a story here that it's supported in newspapers. Uh, my grandmother, when she came over, my mom's um, mom, Blendina, 
she, um, we had always heard she was kidnapped by the family that brought her over and they decided they wanted her to marry their son. And that my uncle, who's also a cousin through marriage, um, her, her cousin had to go to court and adopt her to get her away from them. Um, and said she was too young to be married. Um, I found the newspaper article. You know, that's and in, that's in the book. I yeah, I mean, these kind of things were just like, wow. And it's a different version of the family story, of course. But I find that just so terrific. And, you know, that's the whole point of the story. It's almost like telephone. Mm -hmm. But it's, you know, part of my analysis is what's important to the people who are telling the story. What did they want to pass on to us? And that's what we take. And so I was that listener in the family. And, you know, this is what's evolved. So um, after the book, well, right before I handed in the book, actually the night before I was done, in November, I Googled my great-grandfather one last time. I have looked for years for documentation outside of the family that said what he had done. I do have a Time Life magazine where he, and from 1942, he did the, it's, um, sample of Syriac writing, and it's all uh, an article on biblical languages, and it's his handwriting. They saved it for years. I ordered extra copies when I could, and so I have all of those, and that kind of stuff outside I was looking for. So imagine, 11.30 at night, I get up at 5 a.m. to go teach. I have to be at work at 7.30, and I Google David Jacob Benjamin, and all these Dutch websites came up. I didn't really understand why. Now, remember, I have this picture. He's in Holland. It looked like it said evangelist, and it said DS Benjamin. And I was like, I did not know what DS is. It's a form of deacon. And it's like saying reverend. Yeah. So it said, do you want to translate? Sure. I found my great, my great grandfather's biography. And I was crying at 11.30 at night. Who do you call to say what you just found? I had to stay up to read. And I had to translate the whole thing. Um, on Google Translate, it only translated a little. So then I realized that when I typed it in, I got a better translation. Uh -huh. And so I did. And it mentioned my grandfather. It actually had a, another version of that story about my great uncle and aunt falling off the roof. So, you know, that spiraled as well. It snowballed into an amazing story. Um, I didn't know that my great-grandfather worked for the Dutch Reformed Church. So we're Presbyterian. I knew he was a Presbyterian minister. But apparently that disagreement was with the Presbyterian missionaries in Iran. So he left looking for funding. He opened a school in Russia a missionary school. You know, he graduated from school in Ermia. He was an orphan also. His parents were killed. His uh, father was a mis uh, missionary and a minister, but worked with the Americans, uh, the Cochran family, and uh, Perkins. Um, and so my great-grandfather took it upon himself through connections. He went to London he didn't speak English, uh, excuse me, yeah, English. And he was crying and discovered by a man who sent him to Sweden. Sweden sent him to the Netherlands. And he met Mr. Mastenbrook, who um, was changing things. So my great-grandfather historically became the first Dutch Reformed Church's missionary. 
And so when you look up their church in even, uh, you know, uh, Wikipedia or any of these sites, he's listed as their missionary. And I thought Massenbroke actually wrote the biography and Googled him and found a film in the United States of him. Um, and all the comments were in Dutch. So I watched it thinking I might find my great grandfather in it. I said, wouldn't it be cool to see him alive? So I look and I see, I don't see him, but I'm watching Mr. Mastenbrook. You know, he was a reverend. Um, and I don't know who he's with. Um, and so I, all the, the comments were in Dutch, but I wrote, who posted this? And someone responded with the name of an organization. So I said, I'm looking for the Mastenbrook family. And never realized, excuse me, Kirsten, not Mastenbrook. It ended up being written by Mastenbrook. Reverend Kirsten, excuse me, was the person who was in the video. And his grandson replied to me. And I said, I'm looking for the Kirsten family. And he said to me, who are you? I said, I'm the great-granddaughter of Reverend Benjamin. He had the flu. I will email you in a week. He emailed me with Mastenbrook, who is the biographer, pardon me, who is a historian working at the library for the Dutch Reformed Church, 82 years old, came to the U.S. twice looking for my family, looked up all the Benjamins in the phone book at the time, but he was still out west. We weren't out west. Yeah. That's where the, the hub is for their church. My great-grandfather had been there. He thought he settled there. So now I'm in contact with the biographer, in this work, they call him Armenian, and it may be the Google translation. I still don't know because it's difficult to communicate. But he sent me the original book. That's my great-grandfather. And there are 68 pages in here dedicated to him and his work. And they never knew what happened to him. So I was able to fill him in. And at first he said to me, I don't know if this is really... Your great-grandfather, I found the photo in one of the cabinets, and it was the only photo that was not taken in the Netherlands. I have the original. Wow. I held it next to it, took a snapshot with my phone, and attached it, and I said, you have the right person. Mm -hmm. So then um, I sent him. He wanted a, a picture of the gravestone, and he wanted to know what became of my great-grandfather, and he also wanted um, his obituary. He wrote an article and had it published this last fall wow. about what became of my great-grandfather. And he talks about me and learning from me what happened and how we came to meet. Pretty awesome. That's amazing. It really is. And there is the school, a picture of the, ch the school from Russia and the gravestone. Mm -hmm. It was pretty awesome. And that's the greatest thing for me that came out of this book, to share it with family. And all, since then, Mr. Uh, Massenbrook actually, he went all over the Netherlands after having a stroke in the summer, had someone write to me, the Kirsten grandson, do not worry, he wants you to know um, if he's not communicating, this is why. He had lost some of his speech. He was in rehab, but he really wanted to work on this article. He still managed to get it published. And um, I was asked not to visit him. 
his wife said it would excite him too much. <laughs> and um, so I uh, did not, but we communicated via email and got the article published. And wow. My great-grandfather's a Syrian. Wow. wow. Yeah. So um, that was complete news. And I know that my great-grandfather was warned by the Cochrane family. I have that in a family document to come here, that there was basically a price on his head. He had baptized some people who were Muslim, and he was being chased. So he came just prior to the war. My great-aunts stayed in the Netherlands to study. One became a nurse because they were being raped, the girls, etc. And my family was very uncomfortable with having them in Ermia. So they sent them to uh, the Netherlands to stay with a minister. And he was uh, another minister who had a daughter, Monica. You know, we know all this info. I can't find that family. And the wife of that minister actually published the first article about my great-grandfather. Um, and so... Mastenbroek went around the Netherlands and got me copies of all the original documents, including deposit slips to the Royal Bank of Persia. So to have this now, and I feel like, not that my work is done, but there was a purpose to all of this. And, you know, I have a friend who said to me, this is the work you should have been doing years ago. I couldn't have because Google Translate didn't exist. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, believe me, I've looked through ProQuest, all kinds of libraries, the American Bible Society, and I've even recently learned they had dropped him, the Dutch Reformed Church, because they said he converted to Lutheranism. And I never understood where did that come from. So I've actually gotten the records since from the Lutheran Church. My great-grandfather is the one that helped Fossum do the first Kurdish periodical. And I was talking to Eden Naby the other day, and she said to me, she wondered where Fossum got all this information. I said, it was my great-grandfather. No credit given to him. But he was working with him. And because he went to Mahabad there with him, Subala, they also they called it at the time, um, because he was there, he was outside of Ermia, just shy of it, and the uh, Dutch hadn't approved it. He never converted. He was helping this man with biblical translations, etc., and um, that's why he lost his funding. Wow. Yeah. So that's what my grandfather was really talking about, how things went bad. I don't know if he really understood that his father worked for the Dutch. Um, and, you know, he was so much younger than his siblings. Um, so I had that, and since then, because of all this work in the book... And Sargon Donabed's connection, a woman in Arizona, Kathy Zatari, Syed Zatari, uh, reached out to me. And we just submitted a huge grant proposal to Cal State and Stanislaus um, in Turlock, you know, uh, for a genocide exhibit. And I'm the co-director of that exhibit now. And I'm working with the university, a woman named Erin. And uh, so we'll see what happens. I'm excited about that. And I um, am also, uh, the same week I found Mastenbrook and confirmed that he indeed knew uh, he had the right family, I received an email at work from a woman out in California, Annie Elias, 
And Annie said, hi, I'm an Assyrian. You know, my family was in Yonkers at one point. We were in Chicago. We were out in California. I have this film that my dad left me. And I had it digitized. When I Googled a street sign, part of it's in Yonkers. It seems to go from town to town, uh, Chicago, Turlock, um, New Jersey, New Brenton, and Yonkers. And she said, I recognize the Reverend Benjamin from your book. I Googled Assyrians and Yonkers and I found your book. I ordered it. She didn't know he was my great grandfather. So that film, remember when I was looking at Reverend Kirsten looking for my great grandfather? I now have a film of my great grandfather in it. Wow. Yeah. And so Annie and I um, actually wrote up a proposal for the Assyrian Studies Association to do the research. And we received a grant. And I'm traveling. And Philly. Philly's also in the film. Um, from place to place, trying to get people to watch the film so we can identify people doing the research. Uh, John Amir just gave me his Eastern, excuse me, Assyrian stars. I'm actually quoting them. And I'm finding information out about families um, to use that are mentioned in the film. You know, people were able to identify them, but I had no background. And I'm on Ancestry looking up background. That's what we're working on now as well. So it's awesome because I watched most of it here, I have to tell you. I took it to work. I, I was That morning I got it, you know. I, I wanted to just stay home for the day, but I went to work. And during my prep period, I watched a little clip and I started crying. I lost my dad a couple of years ago before all of this new work. And there he is in the film at the age of 12, coming out of church, with playing with his brother and my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, who were from Jilpashan in Ermia also. Um, and there they all are. Um, and to see even friends, I recognized faces of my father's friends as little children. I couldn't believe it. And then I saw the Philadelphia section. And my great uncle, who bought the club in Yonkers, happens to be there, the Assyrian Aid Society. He's outside with a cousin. And I find out because of that, Eden Abbey is also related to that cousin. That cousin married into my family. He's her relative. Wow. And I got information. She remembers going into my cousin's house in Yonkers. I'm, so do I. But I was, you know, very young. And so I don't remember it well. But she knows my relatives. And it's just, it's incredibly, I, it's just an experience when you realize most of us are connected, depending on when we came over, where we came. And everyone knew everyone. And when I'm reading even these Assyrian stars, you know, how they used to report from each community, mm -hmm. even family trips. I saw a trip that I made out in 1970. I was in third grade. My sister was two, one of my sisters. And I remember because she was swimming and everybody would panic at the hotel pools because she'd jump in off the high dive. And, you know, they, and I have a picture of her clapping for herself because everybody was so amazed. And so I remember very clearly, and we went out to Gary, Indiana to visit my great uncle. And I didn't know that my family reported that to the Assyrian store, that everyone who got it was reading that we were in Indiana visiting Jacob and his wife, Ruth, you know, um, just so strange. Yeah. Uh, and I learned about, you know, different relatives, their first husbands who passed um, and different families, even from New Britain. Uh, there are 
the George family uh, jewelry stores in the film. And when I went to New Britain, I became friends with Denise Perra. I found her through an obituary of her father that I thought I recognized because he's in my book. And I saw him out in California in one of the clips. So we started talking and it wasn't him. It was actually someone else. Uh But we met and she was able to identify a ton of people in the film, including our mom and aunt. And she cares for her elderly aunt in her 90s right now. And she said to me, she never saw her mom so happy because her mom wasn't married. She was young, carefree. And there she is with her sister coming out of church in New Britain, laughing, you know. Um, and I learned about South Church. I knew about St. Thomas, but South Church was a Presbyterian church that people, uh, we all, we had our own services, the Assyrians, afterwards, and that we were part of their mission. Mm-hmm. And they have an Assyrian room. You know, all of this, I had no idea. And I was looking because I wondered if my mom went to church there because my mom was actually born in New Britain. We had a farm out there for a little while. And it was also owned by my Uncle Dave. They lost it in the Depression. And then they fully settled in Yonkers. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm just learning about so many people and the connections that we all have. Just from that folklore class, that two-day folklore class, and from listening to my grandfather. Wow, that's amazing. Um, I kind of want to dive into the book a little bit. And there okay. Were some things, and I highlighted the pages of that I found really, really interesting. So there's one of um, the Ellis Island mm-hmm. certificate of... Yonan Kambar. That's my grandfather. That's your grandfather. Yes. Um, he so married. Us, how did you find this certificate? Okay, oh. so this certificate came later. Okay. Um, Before we dive into that, can we explain what Ellis Island is to America? Because we have listeners worldwide. So just Okay, to- so Ellis Island is an entry point for many immigrants. Um, and there, that's where people were inspected. They were held over before they could come into the country, right near the Statue of Liberty. Mm-hmm. And um, you reach it by boat, coming into New York Harbor. Yes. And Lady Liberty stands there with her torch as a welcoming beacon of welcome mm-hmm. to all refugees. <laughs> Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free is inscribed it came later. She's holding a tablet. That's what it says. That's part of it. Emma Lazarus wrote it. And they. some of my family came through Ellis Island. Not all of Some came through Boston Harbor as well. And so Ellis Island is famous for immigration, and it also brought people to Yonkers. The factories in Yonkers, you could get easy work. There was a carpet mill there, too. And many of our relatives knew a little about carpets. And so they ended up working there, or the Campbell Hat Factory, Otis Elevator was there, all along the river, um, close to Jersey, the community in Jersey, close to New Britain. And so that's how they settled here. But Yonin Kambar came in through from Jilpashim. But this certificate actually came years later in the 1980s. Um, they were celebrating the anniversary of Ellis Island, and they were renovating it and preserving it as a museum. Mm -hmm. And they were issuing, if you applied, if your relative came through, you could have the name inscribed 
at Ellis Island in the stone, there's a memorial. Well, I don't know, a, a celebratory memorial. And um, that's why we have the certificate. We did it for Yon and Cambor. Wow. Do you know of any other Assyrian names inscribed in? Well, I know Lucy Ives, who's my great aunt, who became a Benjamin. Her family also came in through Ellis Island. Um, that's really all I know for sure right now. Oh, Alice David, the David family from Yonkers also came in through Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. And then there was another part as well. I mean, because there's different pictures throughout the book, and there's a um, business certificate for Sam Jacobs for a Washington cafe. Yes. And then it says that this is the corner that became the Assyrian gathering place. Yes. Where every everybody came. So they they used to say Hemsha because everything was around 15. <laughs> and so people would go in there. It was a restaurant and um non-Assyrians and Assyrians would go in to eat, etc., and gather. It was down in Getty Square in Yonkers, right by the river, um, and uh, like a saloon as well. And during the Prohibition, there was some work there, mm-hmm. activity. Yeah. And then another thing I found interesting was uh, the Schliemann store. Okay, yes, their store. So um, Schliemann, which pronounced in Assyrian is Schliemann, yes. And then in the book, it's it's spelled out Schliemann. Yes. So a lot of people would think that this is a, a Jewish name. Okay. It's based on the way Georgina Kerr okay. gave it to me. Okay. This is her family. Okay. And I even make a comment at the beginning of the book about spellings. Uh, yes. Because I had Sargis families, Javargis families, and uh, Schliemann, Schliemann, and all spelled differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the relatives, you know, the people that I told you about that connected didn't yeah. know they were, they spelled their name differently. Um, and even some people who ended up in Tiflis, um, the day, one family I know, the Davids became David off. They became, their names became Russified. And so that's what I can chalk that up to. It's also possible that it was my phonetic error. I don't know for sure, but I don't think so because I had people email me about their families. Georgina recently passed, and I am now in touch with her daughter uh, through Facebook. Mm-hmm. There's a part in the book about David Jacobs. Who is David Jacobs? So Dave, Here you write, quote, yes. unquote, Mr. Information. Yes. So Uncle Dave, he's the man um, who bought the club from the Flynn family in Yonkers. Okay. And the Flynn's also own the funeral parlor that we use, and they we've known them for years. Um, and they also had a politician in their family, Senator Flynn. His uh, obituary says that he owed David Jacobs $3,000 upon his death, and uh, it was in the New York Times. Uh-huh. So Uncle Dave is really Esmael, and they changed the name Jacobs. They wanted to do business with other Jewish folk. Mm-hmm. And that's why he changed his name. Sam Jacobs is his brother. Mm-hmm. There was uh, a Jonathan, Jonathan uh, Jacobs as well. They all changed their names. And so uh, Dave bought this building, started, he was one of the founders of the Federation mm-hmm. and the club, the association was part of that. And he brought people over. 
and help people get established. In 1933, he raised a lot of money for Simile and what happened in Iraq. Um, very, very active uh, when um, Marshaman came to visit. He visited Dave's house. Um, I think I actually have a, a picture there, in the book. Is yeah, there. and yeah. so Dave's one, his daughter, his only daughter, is still alive. She's, and I don't mean to say still. She is my cousin, Elizabeth. Um, I'm very, very close with her. She's just moved to California mm-hmm. to be with her daughters. Um, she lost her husband this past year, and uh, Elizabeth remembers all of this. You know, and people were in her house. Um, they had a beautiful house on Belvedere Drive. And, um, my uncle was a businessman. He, he owned a lot of properties. He owned liquor stores. Um, and so really was very connected in Yonkers. Um, but you'll always see him on the dais if there's a huge gathering of Assyrians and you'll see all these priests, ministers, and there's Uncle Dave. And Uncle Dave, let me just say, he was the man who's my grandmother's cousin who adopted her. But because he was married to a woman, Emma Jacobs, who became Emma, Mm -hmm. she was a Benjamin. Mm -hmm. Emma's younger brother, Nick, my grandfather, lived with them. And that's how he met my grandfather. So when Dave brought his cousin in. So those cousins I'm actually related to on two sides of the family. One through marriage and one through blood. Wow. We're very close. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom, Lydia Benjamin, is also, she's with us. She's uh, going to be 91. We celebrated her 90th last year, and she has a younger sister, Joanne, who lives in Pennsylvania. Wow. And we have a cousin, Betty Benjamin, who's in the film, all over the film. She's in her early teens. She's 97, living in Florida. And David Benjamin Lucy, the woman who bought the knitting store, mm-hmm. Uh, her son is 91, and he's living in Jersey. Now, the best part of that film connected to the book. I really wanted a photo of that knitting store for the book. No one had one. This man, Aga John Baba, filmed inside the store. Auntie Lou is making a sale. All the Assyrian women are in a knitting circle in the store. I, could, I recognize them all as my grandmother's friends. My grandmother's there. My great uncle, Natan, I've never seen him alive. My grandfather's brother, the man who fell off the roof, mm-hmm. is in the film. Wow. So to see Cambars, Morads, that's my grandmother, Emma Cambars' family, mm-hmm. to see them in the film, to see all these people I recognize, a police officer from Yonkers, uh, Darius Baba Sr. It's just really a gift. Mm-hmm. Annie Elias needs to be blessed for this. Wow. And this Aga John Baba, we actually found his address. I'm investigating. I had a cousin, Shushan Yonan, who was a Baba, who moved in t- to Turlock, but was in Illinois at one point. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if they're related. In my great-grandfather's little notepad, they saved everything of his. The family really revered him. His address is there. He had a publishing house on Huron Street, mm-hmm. and he lived next door. Wall of Syrian Publishing. So when you were first given all of your family's collections of photos, videos, what was your initial thought? Like, Okay, so I made the videos. I had the photos, and they still come. Mm-hmm. Um, my initial thought was, these are really important. I have to preserve them in some way, just because 
I'm the academic at the time, you know, the, that's how I see myself, I guess, but to, that I needed to collect and preserve. I didn't know that I would be looking at them for the dissertation, you know, as an English major, English ed, I am really just looking at the narratives at first. And I realized how all these photos could connect. But I'm also constructing a story. I'm constructing my own narrative through constructing this history. Mm-hmm. And so when I discovered this picture of Shushan, you know, our cousin in, cousin Susie, and in Assyrian, I had someone translate it, it says Shushan. Mm-hmm. And so I started looking, Shushan Yonan, started, and I found her on Ancestry, found her relatives, some of her relatives, you know, she's got, uh, she had siblings, she has children, um, and their, their children are around. And so I haven't gotten to them yet, mm-hmm. but, but um, that may be next. Mm-hmm. But uh, this uncanny photo, too, of this boy sent me from uh, New Britain of, I think she's really related to us. Mm-hmm. I have to figure out how. Mm-hmm. More research on your end there. Yeah. So <laughs> it started all just with family mm-hmm. and knowing how valuable all of this is. So even this little piece of paper, uh, Mr. Suleiman, who was at the Assyrian Presbyterian Church, um, and really did a lot of work in Iran, pretty well known. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up with his grandchildren, and he and his wife, Saria, were good friends with my grandparents. He had translated uh, the Lord's Prayer for a uh, service, mm-hmm. because when the Assyrian Presbyterian Church closed, some, when those people came, some of them had already been at a South Presbyterian Church. It was really a Scottish uh, congregation. But they brought with them some of their Assyrian. And we had a minister who really respected that. And so we had the prayer. Mm-hmm. And I knew enough to save it. Mm-hmm. I just, I, you know, I, people always in the family, Uncle Jake's writings, everybody has a copy. I now have multiple copies. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I collected the photos. My aunt brings photos to me constantly. And when my dad passed, I started going through Cambar photos and Morad photos. I'm heartbroken that there is a family in there that I don't, there's nothing written on the back of any of their pictures, and he has multiple photos of them. He actually, I can tell, were, they were reprinted. Um, my father did a lot of work with photography. But I, I know they look like Cambars. And they may actually be yawning Cambars, brother's children, I'm not sure, or sister's children. But when I looked at them at first, I actually thought one was my great aunt, my grandmother, my, you know, uh, mm-hmm. my great um, uncle. It's not them. The ages don't match up. Mm-hmm. So it's another family, and they really resemble the Cambars. So I have to figure this out, or the Morads. Mm-hmm. And um, I also learned more about my great-grandmother on that side through these photos. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that, you know, I had, I, that she was even here mm-hmm. until I went through the, the photos. Wow. Yeah. Well, I do have some questions from uh, some of our listeners. What's the most fascinating information you've come across during your research? Honestly, it's finding out about the Dutch Reformed Church mm-hmm. and all that, that connection. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And having those documents in hand. Copies of the originals is just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, a story I never knew about. Yeah. And I honestly don't know if my grandfather really knew. Wow. If he knew the details, 
He was a little, little baby. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your earliest memories growing up in an Assyrian community in, in Yonkers. So I grew up in South Presbyterian Church with all the Scots. Um, but I remember Sunday dinners at my grandmother's. We make the dolma. My sister makes dolma all the time for us. Um, and the chad uh, and going over there after church. Um, my grandmother uh, became sick at a very young age and she had severe arthritis, um, so did not walk. And we would go to her house and have these meals. My aunt would prepare them with my grandfather, his rice pudding. He loved to make his rice pudding, his chipta, um, <laughs> you know, a- any of it. Um, Bashala and doa, it just, and the halva. Um, and the, the bachlawa, all of it was made and devoured. Yeah. And that's one, and it's ironic, the other memory is being in that church, the, the uh, Assyrian Presbyterian church, but it's also associated with eating. I remember being in the basement and after church, the big dinners um, with all the Assyrians. I don't remember that the services were in Assyrian. Um, I was very young, but I remember the stained glass. I remember it was much darker than the Presbyterian church, which had been rebuilt because of a fire, the Presbyterian, Assyrian, excuse me, the South Presbyterian church. So it was much more modern and it was very bright. But the Assyrian church was an old bank that um, the congregation actually purchased. When they closed... We took those pews from that church after the fire at South Press. They came to South Press. My father, I put the picture in the book, was so proud that his initials were still carved in that church bench, that mm-hmm. pew, because he did them as a little boy in the other church. Oh, wow. And, you know, our community was really about church. You know, Gasha would come over on Sundays and, and stay with the family and... I, the Salamans, I remember very, very well. And I wanted more photos of them as a tribute to them as well. And I wish I had more photos of uh, the Cambors, you know, um, but I did get dads. And it's ironic. I don't know if I would have been where I was in the process if had dad been alive, you know. And mom was living with me then. Mm-hmm. So she, here she was. Even She has... You know, she needs some assistance. And so she's here, and she's identifying people in the photos with all of the side commentary. That's an absolute riot. But, you know, I'm getting all kinds of stories. It's wonderful to have such a rich heritage, but to know, too, about Nestorians. And, you know, I got all of that from these stories. And I understand the connection and the roots and the importance and... Just even with the ministers, talk, with the South Presbyterian minister talking with my grandfather about the Assyrian Presbyterian Church and the background of the Nestorians and how she went to China, she wouldn't believe my grandfather that there was Syriac writing. And she saw it, took pictures and brought it home for him. And he, he, he was not moved. He just said, I told you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I knew this. I told you. Um, you know, that kind of thing. And growing up, at high school, nobody really knew who Assyrians were until the Shah was deposed. And when there was, there were new arrivals. Those are the last real arrivals to Yonkers en masse was then, um, from Ermia, a lot of them, Tehran, etc. But they came and they didn't know I was Assyrian. And it was fun listening 
to them. You know, our soccer team, I'll never forget, I forget what year, but we were state champs. It was all Assyrian. The whole team of Yonkers High School, to me, seemed mostly Assyrian. Wow. And they didn't know I was until one day, young man named Sargon, one of the Sargons, and I had Schlemans. I had, I came home. I said, Mom, there's a Schlemun in my class. She goes, you mean Schlemun? What are you kidding? <laughs> and then uh, Shemirin came over, and we did Shekhani, and my mother connected with them. It was so exciting to me. <laughs> now, here were all these other Assyrians, more, you know? Yeah. And um, so one of the Sargon was making fun of a Greek friend of mine and all the makeup she had on. And he basically said in Assyrian, you know, get a load of her face. Yeah. So I, I said, that was not very nice. And he looked at me and I said, yeah. He goes, you don't understand me. I said, oh, yes, I do. And he goes, oh, come on. And jokingly, you know, Assyriano, is that you? And I said, look, I prefer Sudet. <laughs> he just... You know, and within minutes, these people gathered around me like, who are you? And the irony is they knew my grandfather. Yeah. They all knew him as Uncle Nick. Yeah. You know, the club was different then. Um, it had fell into some disrepair. It was just recently renovated. Um, Fred Sarkiso had redone it. And, um, you know, even... So do you know Helma Adi? Yes. Okay, so I showed Helma's film the night before our gallery opening. We had a dinner at the Assyrian Club. I hadn't been there since I was a little girl. I remember going there all the time. Mm-hmm. He's got my Uncle Dave's picture up, so proud. And we had over 200 people just show up. People didn't all use Evite. We had enough food, but people were sitting on the floor. We had so many people that we didn't know were coming. And we showed Helma's film. We had Sargon came and he spoke for me. And it was such a great feeling. People flew in from Ohio, California, Chicago, all about this work. It was just to even be in that space. Some people thought um, I said I was doing it at the church and changed. I, I didn't. I, and I had to explain why I wanted it at the club. And his grand, you know, Dave's grandchildren were flying in. Mm-hmm. It needed to be at the club. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still there now, right? It is, yeah. Okay. On Ludlow Street. I'll have to pay a visit there. Yeah, I can bring you over. (laughs) So bringing it all together, you know, um, and all of us together. It's so important. When I spoke at City Hall last year for the flag raising, Mm -hmm. I talked about how most of us live under the cross and that we're all really one. And whether we identify as Syriacs or even Maronites or Chaldeans and or the newcomers, the old comers, you know, the Soraya, the Sorayo. I mean, we, we really need to get it together here. I think it's incredibly important to acknowledge the kindred, yeah. that um, it is there and we're all kin. And if we're ever going to achieve any kind of unity or any property on the knit of a plane, any kind of sovereignty, uh, we need to come together. Yeah. So this work ends up doing that a little bit, which it can be my contribution, I guess. Yeah. I still, I want to work with the narratives a little more that I have. I have that whole notebook over there. That binder is filled with those stories. Wow. Um, and now I have more videotape that I can isolate voices. When I started this, I couldn't. So I have all of that to deal with. We'll see. Wow. What, if any, differences do you see in Assyrians from New York and Assyrians in the rest of the world? 
Um, in the rest of the world, maybe just from when we settled, where we're coming from, and how close we are to genocide. I hate to say it. Mm-hmm. How far is your generation removed? But we're all linked to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really depends on the immediate experience. And that, to me, uh, is what makes us differ a little bit. But we're all dispersed. We're all living in diaspora. I think that that trauma is really at the heart. Mm-hmm. And I hate to be identified by trauma. And we are right now. But then we need to also work with that. You know, I'm always interested in memory. And I, I read these studies about DNA and how trauma can affect different generations. You know, 100 years ago, not literally, but in the 80s, I read a book called Rise of the Euphrates about an Armenian family and how it affected two generations later and the granddaughter's first dismissal of her grandmother and then really coming to understand what had happened. And William Saroyan, I found this just the other day. You know, he's an Armenian writer. He was. Um, and he writes about meeting a Bedell, Theodore Bedell in Turlock. And realizing that he's an Assyrian. He thought he was an Armenian when he first saw him. And he says about Armenians, but it it applies to us. And I always think of this. We are a small people. And whenever one of us meets another, it's an event. We are always looking around for someone to talk to in our language. And I'll add to that someone who looks like us. I am on the subway. I said to my friend, oh, look. That person's an Assyrian. And he says to me, are you kidding? I don't get on the train and say, oh, look, there's an Irishman over there. Or there's, I, I don't even think that way. I said, because there are so few of us. We are searching wherever we go. I went to visit my cousins in California. Now, they're in the L.A. area. My cousin had a, a studio for her company in another little city nearby. And I can't think of the name right now but many Armenians and Assyrians. I never felt like everyone looked like me. I've never been in a place there were so many people that I identified with, and they knew that I was Assyrian. There was no question about it. I went in to just get my hair blown, and the woman was like, oh, an Assyrian, are you Assyrian? (laughs) And yeah, you know, it's just, there it is. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, and I identify with some of my Persian friends who also came over, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, depending on their experiences. And I, I respect them. And I have two friends who are professors, brilliant, brilliant people. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was actually in the Shah's cabinet. Wow. He's an elderly man wow. who's back. He's returned. Wow. But, um, you know, I shared the stories with them. I shared the photos with them. But looking... Constantly. And I know, you know, even when I was waiting for you at the train, mm-hmm. I knew who you were. <laughs> as soon as I saw your face, I'm like, there she is. And when Annie Elias arrived, I knew who she was. And we laughed because we were on our way to Marmari Church. And she waited outside while I put the alarm on. And my two of my neighbors started walking toward her thinking it was me. One said, as she, as she got closer, she thought she was my sister. <laughs> I was just, we were laughing. Yeah. Um, and we, we still, the jury's out. We may be related. Mm-hmm. We're still working on that. Yeah. You might find some, some history there. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think Assyrians moved to New York? I honestly, I think for the, the businesses and through Ellis Island. Mm-hmm. 
this was the place to be. Yeah. When do you think the first Assyrians came here? Late 1800s. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because my uncle bought the club in 1914. Mm -hmm. He had already been here, and I know there were people here before him. Mm -hmm. I know of... So we had three people from the Jacobs family marry into our family, mm -hmm. the Benjamin family. Um, two sisters, two Benjamin sisters married two Jacobs, but then we also had the cousin situation. Mm -hmm. But my uncle Jake uh, wrote about how he ran into Dave on the street one day and he knew him mm -hmm. uh, from the other side. And, you know, the camaraderie there. Who are some of the more notable Assyrians from New York? So everybody talks about Joe Eshoo. We have Joe Eshoo Field Park. It was Pelton Field. It's Joe Eshoo Park, actually, on Van Cortlandt Park Avenue in Yonkers mm -hmm. and uh, McLean Avenue. Mm -hmm. Joe Eshoo played for the Newark Yankees, baseball player. Um, so he, everybody talks about him. He also signed many um, famous baseball people, you know, their pictures. He was an artist also. Mm -hmm. And at our exhibit, we had two of his pictures wow. up. And uh, so we talk about him. Now, there's also Victor Aslan did a lot of inventing. Many, many patents that you can discover. Even, I forget what one of them was, a, a hydro, something with hydraulics. Um, but they were all over the Internet. Wow. And uh, his uh, sister's alive in California in her 90s as well. And I actually got in touch with her through all of this. Her niece, Nancy Jacobs, who has the same name as another Nancy Jacobs I know, and when she signed in at that first gallery exhibit, I thought she was the Nancy I know, mm -hmm. married to my cousin Roger. But Nancy said, no, I wasn't in Yonkers. So I'm like, who is this Nancy? It was Nancy Lee Jacobs out in California who had come in from San Jose. So, and she was still in touch with some of my Jacobs cousins. I just was unaware. She remembered me when I was little, and now I'm in touch with her brother Kevin as well. Wow. And Emmy Aslan, who's in her 90s. What are and Miss, oh, I'm sorry, sorry Mr. Suleiman also. So I'm, I'm not 100%. We have to check this out, so maybe you can edit. But uh -huh. he, Mr. Suleiman, either he worked with the railroads in Iran or the roads in Iran mm -hmm. and um, really changed the landscape of Iran before coming here. Wow. So. Wow, really cool stuff. Timothy oh. Suleiman. Timothy Suleiman, okay. What are current Assyrians in Yonkers like? Is there any feeling of detachment from the cities around the U.S. with larger Assyrian populations like Chicago? I think so. I, I think that Chicago, even New Britain, may have more hmm. newcomers coming, even from Iraq, right, or from Syria based on uh, different programs that they sponsor. When I was even in New Britain, even though the community is still small, they um, were sponsoring people coming over from Iraq a few years back. Mm -hmm. Chicago, even growing up, I heard, oh, you know, they teach Assyrian in the Chicago schools. It's so different from here, <laughs> you know? And that's why I called the, the Chicago club for help, you know? But the Yonkers community now is really Marmori. Mm -hmm. And because generations have moved out of Yonkers because of just changes in Yonkers and people move to the suburbs, you know, out of Yonkers generations uh, forward. Um, but people still who go to Marmari Church don't all live in Yonkers. Yeah. People who frequent the club don't, but their roots are in Yonkers. It's, it's kind of exciting because 
my aunt Cheryl, who lives in Yonkers, who still lives downtown, never moved out, doesn't want to move out, um, is in a building on a Sunnyside Drive, and it's right near one of the train stations, Ludlow Station. And currently, there are a great, maybe two handfuls of Assyrians living in the building. And they look out for her, and they now know me from Marmari. And someone made her Bashala the other day. And, you know, the fact that she took it from them, I think when she was younger, she would just dismiss certain people. But knowing that they know me and that it's okay. And um, so she's in, she's 86, actually 87, sorry. She just turned 87 in November. She um, talks with them and they look out for her, knowing that, She's in a building with people who know her, know her history, and watch out for her. Mm-hmm. It's just wonderful. That's amazing. It really is great. And when I pull up, you know, the, to pick her up, I often drive her um, different places. And when I pick her up, there will be people outside that I know. So it was, it was, it was pretty great to know that even within that, there's this community in this building, in the neighborhood, and I don't know where everyone is living, you know, but I know people come in from Mayapak. I know people come in from Palm Ridge. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are still living in Yonkers. I know um, one family has a business, a construction business, a landscaping business mm-hmm. in Yonkers still. So if anybody wanted to buy your book, it's called Assyrians of Yonkers. You can buy it on Amazon. Yes. So the book, I was researching online and I noticed a lot of people write comments and say, I saw my grandmother on the cover page or like this allowed me to reunite with such and such relative. Yes. How did that make you feel when you were reading that? Uh, it's, so I discovered this cousin on it. <laughs> I saw the review and she says I'm related to Cambar didn't realize it. Apparently she says I'm related. So immediately I called a cousin and I said, who is she? And I found out that one of my cousin's mom's was married prior, and she's actually related to him. Mm-hmm. I didn't know him. And so we're not blood relatives um, because uh, the the wife was my blood relative. Um, but I also um, discovered a woman who was on the cover from my book signing. A woman came up to me, and she was crying, and she said, and I can't find her email. It's driving me crazy. I should have done a sign-in that night, and I didn't think of it, um, that she happened to be in the bookstore and loves the Arcadia books, the Images of America series, and saw Assyrians of Yonkers and thought, oh, my God, and picked it up and saw her grandmother on the cover and bought one. I wrote in every one of them to all her children, so that they could understand their own history. And even the woman who said she was connected to me online, uh, who wrote that review, said that she was looking for information about the Assyrians and that when she was able to show the book to her grandfather, he lit up because this is his history from Yonkers, that he got to see everyone he knew, all the familiar faces, that it was actually a reunion by looking at the book. So that's something I didn't anticipate. I didn't anticipate learning about my own family more. Um, and I didn't really anticipate becoming part of another 
you know, an extension of my own community in Yonkers um, because I've been out of Yonkers for years. And it's, it's great to be able to go back and still feel welcome and to have a community. So the flag raisings, I bring my mom. It's, it's, it's important, and we're in that big group picture. Mm-hmm. We have listeners all around the world. What's one piece of advice that you would like to tell them? We have to remember that we're not that different. And as someone said to me the other day, Eden Abbey actually said this to me about my red shoes, that she could tell as a woman from Jopasha that the red shoes are a symbol, okay? And it is a, a symbol of bloodshed and what we've been through and that we're still just as strong as we always were. We just have to do it in a united way. We can't let politics separate us. I know that we all have different politics. And we have to remain focused. And we have to extend ourselves, offer a helping hand to each other. And maybe if we all work together, we can achieve what we really want. And, you know, the phrase, the Assyrian question, getting that property, getting a homeland, I know we're envious of Israel, uh, even the acknowledgement that the Armenians have, and to to have the United States actually recognize the Assyrian genocide is a step, but only a step. And I know Anna uh, Eshu mm-hmm. in California had a lot. Is it yes? It's Anna Eshu to really tell our stories. That's also part of it. We need to be heard and we need to make sure that our voice is heard in different fields, uh, that we have one voice. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's most important. I worked with a group of professors that didn't know our background, not all, you know, but telling our stories is really, really important. In fact, that's the name of the genocide, Tell Our Stories. That's part of the title of that genocide exhibit. Mm-hmm. I hope it runs, and we're looking at August 2021. I hope people come from all over the world. This exhibit in Manhattan on the Ishtar Gate, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I do know that people debate how connected we are to the ancient Assyrians, and I understand that. I, But what I even wrote in my dissertation is that it's so important that we identify as Assyrians. Currently, we speak, we eat, we practice religion. Some of us may not be Christian. But we have our own recognition, our own identifying process as Assyrians makes us Assyrians. That's it. And we have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the work that you did already with oral history is very, very important. So um, I think that resonates with a lot of us that our grandparents and our great-grandparents have told us stories yeah. um, repeatedly and either we've kind of just it's in the back of our heads, but just writing that down or recording it and just having it in our, in any, you know, in the cloud. Yes. In, in nowadays, just to have that for our children and our children's children. It's very important to know who you are. I don't know if you ever saw the film Avalon. A uh, playwright, Barry Levinson, wrote the play and then he made the film. And the grandfather is Sam. It's a, he's Polish, he's Jewish. 
But he came to this country in 1914, as my grandfather did. And in all these stories, you know, everything came from those stories. You know, I came to America in 1914. He starts over and over again. And he says in the film and in the play, if we don't remember, we forget. And the only way to remember is to share and to tell the story. And I'll end with what my grandfather said. Keep it well. Thanks for tuning in. Real quick, I have a favor to ask before we close out. We appreciate all of the feedback we've received on the podcast thus far. If you could take a minute after this to rate and review us wherever you listen to us, we'd greatly appreciate it. We love reading what you have to say. Thanks again and see you next week.